Our second lesson today comes from the Gospel according to Luke. I'm reading the first six verses of chapter 3, and you've already had a hint about what this is about. Listen for God's Word. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod the ruler of Galilee and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Triconitus and Licinius, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, quote, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. It's all hopeless. Even for a crabby optimist like me, things couldn't be worse. Everywhere you turn, our lives, our marriages, and morale, and government are falling to pieces. So many friends have broken children. The planet does not seem long for this world. Repent. Oh, wait, never mind. I meant help. Those are the opening words of the first main section of Annie Lamott's newest book, Help, Wow, Thanks, The Three Essential Prayers. For the past 20 years, Anne Lamott has been one of my favorite writers. She's written a number of books such as Traveling Mercies and Plan B and other books that delve honestly and with humor into the challenges of Christian living. She is at once so faithful and so irreverent. She is at once so whimsical and so real. Her latest book about prayer, help, thanks, Wow, the three essential prayers promises to be another helpful, humorous, insightful book, a primer, again, for Christian living. What Anne Lamont knows, like we all know, is that Christian faith is not ever lived in a vacuum. Christian faith has to be lived out in the real world, and the real world is very hard, hard on our hearts hard on our bodies, hard on our children, hard, hard, hard. Lamont says, what I wanted my whole life was relief. Relief from pressure, isolation, people suffering, including my own, which was mainly mental, and entire political administrations. Besides dealing with standard issue family crisis, heartbreak, and set back, I feel that I cannot stand one more single death in my life. 
And she says, as she writes, that is just too bad. Because, as she's writing, her 13-year-old cat, her closest companion, is about to die from lymphoma. She knows she won't be able to, di- to live without her precious cat. No. Faith is not ever lived in a vacuum. In some moments, we're doing just fine. We believe in God. We trust in God. We can say it clearly. And we can even live on many days with love, at least in some moments. And we generally can maintain a level of hope about most things. And then there are the other moments. The other moments when we find ourselves totally perplexed, facing loss, real loss, A child, a marriage, a career, our best laid plans. In those moments, we're not even sure what faith looks like, what it feels like. We doubt more than we believe. We flounder more than we focus. And we often have more uncertainty than conviction, more tears than hope. I think that's why Annie Lamott's books are so very good. She's so honest and so helpfully humorous in encouraging us to find our way. Life gets messy. It does. Very messy. The word comes, repent. Oh, wait. I meant help. Help. Because that's what we need. John the Baptist is another one trying to help us find our way. Because faith is never lived in a vacuum. Faith is always lived amidst the complexities of culture and the confusions of our lives. Faith is always lived somewhere between misery and hope. Somewhere between lost and found. That's where faith is lived. And in the history of God's people, John the Baptist is the first prophet that has come on the scene in about 300 years. In fact, Luke's introduction of John the Baptist in chapter 3 is designed to give us a fairly precise date when John appears on the scene. And actually, it gives us a lot more than the date. The text says John appeared in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. That would be about the year 28 or 29 A.D. when Pontius Pilate was governor and when Herod was in power. And those names and those rulers do not simply locate John the Baptist in history. Those names and behind those rulers there is a story of oppression and misery and hopelessness that was about to explode. Rome, you see, had ruled the area for about 100 years. Augustus Caesar had, had died in 14 AD. Tiberius Caesar succeeded him and proved much more of a ruthless leader than Augustus. And Herod, Rome's appointed Tetrarch in Galilee, along with his brothers and his sons that are also named here, Herod remains well known for his world of power, his conspicuous consumption, and his reign of terror across the region. 
Herod was the biggest name in Palestine. Herod was one of the richest people in the world. Herod employed more people than anyone in the whole region. You could not walk out of your house without realizing that his name was being spoken everywhere. You could not walk down any road and realize that Herod had built the road along with all the buildings along the road. Herod, 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 everywhere. And Luke doesn't just mention politicians and leaders. He also mentions the religious priests in power. High priests, Annas and Caiaphas. The high priests were not much different than Herod. Popular movements to remove them and bring about some peace among the religious establishment had come and they had gone. Moreover, the religious establishment had become small-minded. Imagine that. The religious establishment had begun focusing on every obsessive, minute detail of personal behavior. They had lost the vision of the coming kingdom of God and were focusing instead on every conceivable item of dress and behavior that went into being a Jew, arguing detail by detail what it meant to be a Jew. Life was no longer about the majesty and the mystery and the holiness of the coming reign of God. It's about keeping house. And it was about keeping rules. And it was often about the lint, the speck of lint that might be found on our clothes. Religion had become more about the weeds growing around the trees instead of the breadth and the beauty of the forest. Faith has never lived in a vacuum. Faithful people are always trying to find their way amidst heartache and hard times. Amidst doubt and despair, amidst the brief moments of hardship that come and the long seasons that seem to take over our lives. It may be spurts, it may be seasons. Faith is always lived among, amidst life's challenges and heartaches. We're always trying to find our way to trusting God and living faithfully as God's servant people in the world. God's coming good news always begins with a messenger. John the Baptist is the messenger to announce God's coming into the harsh world of oppression and terror depicted by Herod. John the Baptist is God's messenger announcing God's coming into the out-of-focus world of religion depicted by Annas and Caiaphas. John went out, it says, into all the country around the Jordan preaching a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What John also does is yell, help. Help is on the way. God's messenger of good news proclaims that God's coming will bring help to all the people. Help against the oppressive regimes and brutality of life that they knew so well. Help against the discouragements and the despair of politics and religion and culture and heartache. Help comes in the one who comes after John in Jesus. 
So John's message picks up on earlier prophetic messages. Prepare the way. And he quotes Isaiah. Prepare the way. Another one of my favorite writers across the last 20 years, as you have figured out, is Eugene Peterson. Peterson has a wonderful way of illuminating scripture and relating important faithful theology to contemporary life. Peterson writes with depth and clarity, tying together historical and biblical theology to current context and personal life. In one of his most recent books, Peterson mentions not only the Bible and theology, but he also mentions the classic Winnie the Pooh by A.A. Milne. You probably recall the story of Winnie the Pooh, which includes a young boy named Christopher Robin and a slew of talking animals like a miniature bear, Winnie, and a little kangaroo named Roo, and some other memorable characters like Tigger and Eeyore. Well, in one Pooh story, Christopher Robin assembles his animal friends for an adventure. They are off to discover the North Pole. It's a meandering tale which, in which everyone takes everything with complete seriousness on this journey, although no one really understands what they're doing or where they're going. Each character contributes something essential to the quest along the way. The world is large and no one is left out on the journey. But no one really knows what the North Pole is, not even Christopher Robin, who initiated this whole quest And then along the journey toward the North Pole, little Roo falls into a stream and he needs rescuing. And with a bunch of panic, everyone pitches in. Pooh reaches over and grabs a pole and fishes Roo out of the water. So the emergency is over and the animals begin talking while Pooh stands there with a pole in his hand. Christopher Robin then says, Pooh! Where'd you get that pole? Pooh looked at the pole in his hands. He says, I just found it. I thought it ought to be useful. So I picked it up. Pooh, Christopher Robin says solemnly, the expedition is over. You have found the North Pole. (laughs) Oh, oh, says Pooh. And then he starts talking with the animals in haphazard way, in a wandering conversation for a while until Christopher Robinson, Robin brings it all back to attending to the North Pole that Pooh had discovered. And they stuck the pole in the ground and Christopher Robin tied a message to the pole and the message says, North Pole, discovered by Pooh. Pooh found it. And then they all went home. Peterson talks about this story to make the point of how easily we are attracted to various North Poles in our search for meaning, in our desire to chart a course out of life's heartache toward hope, in our desire to find our way. We're all caught up and distracted by so many North Poles. This is certainly a sense in these days, perpetuated by our culture, that gifts from the North Pole will make us happy and 
bring about balance and hope to our lives, right? What will it be this year? Another piece of jewelry? Another drawer full of new clothes? Some other gadget? Will any of those make us complete? Navigate our way out of discouragement and despair? Bring us wholeness? Really? In fact, all through the ages, we've been looking for life and hope and purpose and peace in so many places. Do we find life and hope and peace through power and politics? We've always been surrounded by power and politics. It was the 15th year that Tiberius Caesar was in power and Herod was the ruler and Pontius was the governor when John appeared in the Jordan preaching. Do we find life and hope and a way out through power and politics? Or maybe it's the religious structure It was the time when Annas and Caiaphas were the chief priests. They're all around, and John comes on the scene. And we all know how religion, in fact, can get us off track, change our focus, leave us out of touch sometimes. We keep tending to stick the pole in the ground and say, North Pole, there it is. We found it. We found it in all of our racing and going, our conspicuous consumption, our climbing to the top. We found it in our strong defense. If we just have a few more airplanes and battleships and technological weapons, we'll be safe. Really? Except that we're still meaning hungry and we're spirit thirsty and we're God curious. And we're still beaten down and too often perplexed. We are. Our lives, our marriages, our morale, our government still falling short. We keep sticking the pole in the ground and saying, North Pole. We think we found it by jumping headlong into this career or following this craze or adopting this theory. We keep hoping that our fears will be met if we just have enough money. But the world is frightening and the worry continues about ourselves and about our loved ones and about our city and about the whole globe. We wonder who stomped on the accelerator because life is zooming by. Repent. Or, as Lamont says, oh wait, never mind, I meant help. Help. All the gospel stories begin with John the Baptist. Every Advent, we hear from John the Baptist. He appears on the scene, and he points to Jesus, and he says, prepare the way. Prepare the way. There are plenty of other ways We know about them. Other ways attract us. Other ways make promises. Other ways compete and urge us to be selfish. But they don't fulfill. John appeared amidst the power people. You heard about him. Tiberius, Herod, Pontius, others. John appeared when the world was awash 
with meaningless, minute details about faith, with religious frustration from the chief priests, Annas and Caiaphas, in our schools, in our businesses, in our entertainment industry, in all of our professions, even in our churches, we're immersed in a world of ways to live that go against the ways of Jesus. And like Christopher Robin and the mindless characters of Winnie the Pooh, we're, my, we're open and very vulnerable to getting off track, to misdirection. But each Advent, each Advent, John comes on the scene and says, prepare the way. God comes in Jesus. It's not about power and it's not about politics. It's about love and it's about selflessness. It's not about religious rules and it's not about minute details, but about trusting God and seeking to serve God all of our days. It's not about the North Pole or some other pole where it brings more toys or more conspicuous consumption. It's about the essence of life and the essence of life is about relationships between people and the essence of life is about worshiping God and serving God on these streets and around this block and all through our city and all through the world, worship and service, striving to be God's people. What if our preparing this year meant opening our hearts and really looking for God's companionship? What if our preparing this year meant expressing love in more direct ways with people in our homes, in our circle of friends? Love in direct and measurable ways wherever we find ourselves. What if our preparing for God's coming meant rededicating our lives in these days to spiritual growth, sincere prayer life, knowledge and fresh perspective on what Scripture tells us, a fresh mindfulness about God's promises and presence in our hearts and in our lives and for us in the world would give us confidence and purpose in living. What if our preparing had us examine all of our holiday activities and we worked more on the things that brought real meaning and fellowship and joy and justice to the world? What if we were to light candles and the candles of joy and hope and love and peace and light actually grew in us those qualities, joy, love, hope, peace, and light so that we reflected it through these days. We seek to prepare the way. That's John's message. Prepare the way so we can be people of Jesus. The way of life and light. The way toward the kingdom of God. May we each open our lives to God's Spirit and may we turn and keep turning so that God's Spirit stays working on us and we become indeed the kind of trusting, serving, life-giving, light-bearing people that God calls us all to be. Alleluia. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, to turn from you is to fall. To turn to you is to rise to stand with you, to serve you, that's to abide forever. We seek that way, following Christ our Lord. Amen.